what is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? That this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Professor Hussein Dia, the Chair of Civil Engineering at Swinburne University of Technology. We will talk about his vision for the future of cities, future urban mobility, city states, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Hussein Dia is a professor of future urban mobility in the School of Engineering at Swinburne University of Technology, currently serving as the chair of civil engineering and the program leader of the Smart Cities Research Institute's Future Urban Mobility Research Program at Swinburne University. He works alongside highly dedicated academic teams and internal and external stakeholders while facilitating interdisciplinary research and actively engaging with external organizations to identify issues and needs that the Institute can address through its thematic research programs. Hussein is a chartered professional engineer, a fellow of the American Society of Civil Engineers, a fellow of Engineers Australia, and a fellow of the Institute of Transportation Engineers. His research interests are in the convergence of technology, infrastructure, and human elements in urban environments. Hussein's current work is focused on disruptive mobility and harnessing digital innovations to unlock potential opportunities for low-carbon mobility. His current research includes investigations of how autonomous vehicles, blockchain, Internet of Things, and the sharing economy are set to transform mobility in the world's cities. And with that, Hussein, welcome to the podcast. I am very grateful for your time. So before we jump into my usual questions, could you please describe to us what is urban mobility and what is future urban mobility? Fantastic, yes. Thank you for the opportunity to have this uh, chat. Transport and urban mobility are a key pillar of economic development in countries and in cities. Essentially, what we look to do in the Smart Cities Research Institute is to look at how we can create safe and resilient urban transport systems and mobility solutions that meet people's needs uh, for travel. And you know, as we have seen over the past couple of years, people's needs for travels have changed because a lot of people are working from home. So the urban mobility becomes a question of what are the best ways of providing people with access to services, to education, to economic opportunities. You know, taking into consideration we have multimodal transport systems We have the car, the private vehicle, we have public transport systems, and in recent times we have this fantastic ability to be able not to travel at all, but still achieve economic and educational outcomes. Urban mobility really encompasses a large number of these factors, mainly how to provide that access. We look at how do we integrate land use and transport policies, how do we promote investment in um, dense and human-scale cities. How do we build transit-oriented uh, cities so that they become more sustainable? How do we, you know, we have this huge infrastructure that cities have, roads, rail, trains, trams, etc. So how do we optimize their use? There are also uh, some recent aspects of uh, urban mobility is looking at how do we generate new funding to support governments in providing uh, transport because at the moment, you know, taxpayers are paying for this through vehicle registrations, through taxation proper, you know, of properties, etc. Looking at some new pricing policies where 
we can use the income to fund future transport opportunities. And another thing as well, which is very important in recent times, is to look at the freight and supply chain logistics. So, you know, because a lot of people are staying and working from home and ordering online, this has massively changed the freight operations. And I think one of the last things is when we're looking at sustainable transport is to look at the role of public transport and also active transport, because to me, Future cities are healthy cities. Future cities are sustainable cities and also resilient cities. That sounds fascinating. And before we jump into the future <laughs> of cities, you mentioned transit-oriented city. And I would like to know how is it different from the car-based city, which is the result of the traditional city planning around the car, which we use every day to go to work, to go to education and everything else. How is transit-oriented city different from the car-based city and how it will result in different mm. outcomes from the car-based city, which, as we see, can cause huge, huge problems in the urban fabric? Absolutely. That's spot on. I think the policies over the past 15 years were very encouraging of motorized transport. And whether this, I don't think this was intentional. It was, I think a lot of people now realize that these policies were misplaced. And I think as the private vehicle, the motorized vehicle opened up opportunities for people to travel longer and live out of the city, etc. However, we very quickly, people realized that this is not sustainable. When people live outside urban areas or a bit further out in the outer suburbs, you need to provide additional infrastructure, you need to provide additional roads, electricity, communication, etc., etc. So, lucky for everyone, I think in recent years there has been more recognition that this is not sustainable. Okay, and we need to look at better ways of having cities function. And transit-oriented cities and also pedestrian-oriented cities are good examples. So the difference there is that you people don't need to rely on their vehicles as much. Probably nowadays with technology, with car sharing, ride sharing, if they need a vehicle to travel you know, outside the city on a weekend, then they can probably do a car share. But for their daily activities, for going to work, coming from work to home in the evening, having these transit-oriented and pedestrian-oriented developments are good for the environment, good for sustainable cities. I actually think even pedestrian-oriented cities are better because walking is one of the most reliable modes of transport. You don't have to compete with trams and cars and other modes of transport. And people who have the ability to go to work, for example, or to walk to get their shopping done, first of all, it's healthy. And second, it doesn't need a motorized form of transport. It doesn't emit emissions, etc. The Transit-oriented developments, especially for larger cities, are very important. So this is where essentially you avoid the need for travel or you reduce the amount of travel needed. You know, you can appreciate if someone is living in a dwelling which is very near a train station or public transport hub. First of all, they don't need to own a vehicle. It is, in many cases, a burden financially, as well as you need a place to park it and maintain it and all of that. Some people don't even like to drive. So having access to living somewhere near a transit hub 
or maybe even having, you know, living and working near a transit hub just eliminates the need for travel. So as you can appreciate, this can help reduce the kilometers of travel, reduce the stress of travel. A lot of people have realized with the pandemic now and working from home is that actually having to travel two hours a day for work is not really that productive. Yes, we need the interaction, etc. A lot of people are rethinking this now, saying maybe I work three days from home where I am most productive, and then when I need to interact, I go face-to-face, etc. Now, unfortunately, with the pandemic, some of these policies where we were encouraging dense and human-scale cities came under scrutiny because people were trying to avoid crowded places. However, this doesn't mean that this policy was not good. It just means we need to revisit how we design our apartments, for example, in dense locations. How do we improve public transport so that People don't give up on public transport and start to use their vehicles again. These sort of policies will help us reduce emissions and will help cities meet their targets for emission reduction. Just coming back to the last part, encouraging people to use public transport despite the pandemic. How can you do that? How can you make public transport famous and loved again? How can you enhance the use of public transport? That's Yeah, that's excellent. And I think many cities around the world, including Melbourne and Sydney in, in Australia, have made you know substantial progress over the past 10-15 years in actually drawing a lot of people to public transport and uh, encouraging people you know to reduce their reliance on private vehicles. However, most people who travel on public transport would tell you one of the deterrents has always been that they are super crowded, especially during peak hours. And this has become fairly, you know, an intense discussion because of the pandemic, people trying to avoid touching and avoid being close proximity to others. There are ways we can address this. Okay, so for example, we can reduce the burden on public transport by allowing more people to work from home. Even if it's two days or three days a week, it just means fewer people are using public transport and probably they're going to be using it on different days, etc. It is about creating more capacity on public transport. It is also about running more services. Many cities, especially in Melbourne, we have, you know, expanding the public transport network, and that will provide opportunities to increase the frequency of bus arrivals, train arrivals, etc. When you have more capacity, you would have less congestion inside the vehicles. Technology is another aspect as well. Nowadays, you know, if you want to go to a restaurant for dinner, you can actually use an app to book a table. And in the UK and in Europe, they have been trying similar apps to allow people to reserve a seat, if you like, on a train, all right? Whether it is for a short distance or long distance, the app would tell you even where on the train, in the compartment, which seats are available and you can uh, book one. It is possible during the pandemic or over the next couple of years as we are getting out of the pandemic is to start to look at maybe reducing the number of people who are standing so that you can manage the... So technology can play a role. In my view, I think the best policy would be to manage the demand for travel, just like I said before, by reducing the need for travel or avoiding the need for travel sometimes. That can reduce the burden of congestion on public transport. Because let's... I mean, we need to recognize something that for a lot of people, myself included, I feel fortunate that I can do my work from home, for example, or I don't need to go to the office every day. 
but to many other people who, you know, are in certain professions like nursing, for example, teachers who need to go to primary and secondary schools, they don't have that luxury. So we need to ensure that people who have to travel are provided with safe options to travel. And people who don't need to travel, probably if they can do it remotely, that would be a great option. One of the things we don't want to do is give people the incentive to actually go back to using their vehicles. If people feel that public transport is not safe and they do have to travel, then they might revert back to using their private vehicles. And we, unfortunately, we saw some of that in 2020 and 2021 when the demand for second-hand vehicles just went through the roof. A lot of people were buying second-hand vehicles to, unfortunately, substitute their public transport travel with private uh, travel. So there have been a lot of good sustainable behaviors that we developed during the pandemic, which I think we I'm hoping in the future people would keep because we all saw those images from around the world when people were traveling less. You know, you could see these images of pollution disappearing, etc. So this is an opportunity we don't want to waste. We don't want people to lose confidence, as you said, in public transport. Okay, so then what does the future of cities mean to you? Well, cities will definitely continue to be these gigantic magnets of economy and also the core engines of, you know, global activities. All likelihood, I mean, today they are, and yesterday they were, and I think in the future, all likelihood is that they will continue as well. I mean, if we look today, for example, how magnificent cities are, you know, just 100 cities around the world account for something like 30% of the world's economy, drivers of the economy. If you look at London and New York together, they represent around 40% of the global market capitalization. So these tells you that people are moving, are appreciating cities. They move into cities for the economic and social uh, opportunities and so forth. But at the same time, so I expect this to continue, even though we have seen some shifts during the pandemic, people trying to move out of inner city areas to outer city areas, etc. But I don't think this will diminish the relevance of cities as magnets of the economy. We do have a lot of challenges, of course. For example, if you have a world map and you look at it and you plot all the cities, they actually make up only 2% of the Earth's surface. However, they actually accommodate something, you know, more than 50% of the world population. At the same time, they consume something like 75% of the world energy. And unfortunately, cities are responsible for 80% of the emissions and pollution. The cities around the world as well have some challenges which we need to address in terms of social equity. 30% of city dwellers around the world are living in slums. Another maybe 30% have no proper water, wastewater collection. Around 90%, according to a recent study I've seen, 90% of the world population in cities are breathing unsafe levels of polluted air, you know, resulting in many death barriers, etc. If we look at transport, you mentioned transport. Around the world, every year, we lose 1.2 million people to traffic crashes. So cities will continue to play a major role going forward. They will need to be dynamic. They will need to be agile. And, uh, you know, many cities have great leaders and decision makers. 
And I'm just confident that the future is going to be really brilliant going forward. Are these challenges your fears and concerns regarding the future of cities? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, whether we are talking about, you know, rapid urbanization and cities that are growing very, very fast, you know, that is a big concern. I mean, if you look around 200 years ago, only 3% of the world population lived in urban areas. In 2007, for the first time in history, the urban population exceeded the rural population. And since then, the world's population has largely been remained urban. In 2014, 54% of the people lived in the cities and, or urban areas. And if this trend continues, it's expected possibly two-thirds, 67% of the world population will live in cities in 2050. So, as we said before, these people are coming for economic and social opportunities and for growth. But as you can see, this will place tremendous pressure on the infrastructure that serves cities. This is on top of climate change, on top of the environmental emissions and so forth. So yes, definitely this is a major concern. But I think there are many opportunities available for us where we can manage that growth so that it doesn't overwhelm cities. So what are those opportunities? Uh, for example, if we start to look at emissions, okay, and pollution from vehicles, for example, I think in the last five to ten years, there is really, especially with the younger generation, increased awareness of the role of cities in curbing emissions. As I mentioned before, there are a lot of sustainable habits that we developed during the pandemic over the past few years, which are worthy of investigation and to continue with it. Looking at the role of technology, if you look at smart cities, smart cities, these are basically cities that connect the social, physical and economic and information infrastructure to create vibrant environments where people have easy access to services, to places and economic opportunities. They use meaningful technology. I'm all for technology, but it needs to be meaningful. It needs to be citizen-driven, if you like. We need to have the citizen at the core of it. So all of these things can actually introduce opportunities. Another thing that I feel has been happening recently is that even when we look at transport, for example, people are starting to look at mobility. It's just not the provision of physical trains and the cars and the physical infrastructure is starting to look at how mobility impacts the social dimensions of a city. Instead of, I mean, the traditional approach, as you mentioned before, when we had congestion in cities, as we went and we built more roads, and we thought, you know, building more roads, you can get more cars through. I mean, this is now known as the induced demand theory. The more roads you build, the more travel people do in their vehicles. Okay, it's established. So that is a dead end. We cannot do that. Instead of doing more supply and more increasing capacity, people are starting to look at managing the demand for travel. A very good example is London, maybe 10 or more years ago, when actually it was Boris Johnson. As a mayor, he proceeded to introduce the London congestion charging scheme, where people who wanted the luxury of using their vehicles to go into the inner city area, they had to pay a fee. And I recall reading 
that the Prime Minister then, Tony Blair, was very suspicious of the idea. However, it was introduced and it was successful. You know, we have similar things happening in other European cities and closer here to Australia and Singapore. So technology, along with some interesting and bold policies, can actually help to manage the increased demand for, you know, for travel and so forth. Instead of having cities being and transport, having it vehicle-oriented, let's make it people-oriented. Instead of focusing on motorized transport, we have hierarchy of modes, you know, walking, as I mentioned. Nowadays, we have micro-mobility, people using scooters and bicycles and e-scooters and e-bikes and people, especially with the pandemic as well, people not traveling too far, doing local shopping, living more locally as well. All of these are opportunities, you know, we can capitalize on to make cities more sustainable. Is this sustainable living any different from the proximity-based urbanism or the 20 or 30-minute cities? Closely related. The concept of 20 and 30-minute cities is certainly something that has been proposed and something worthy of investigation. And as you mentioned, when you have pedestrian-oriented cities, transit-oriented cities, you reduce your need for travel, or you might even avoid the need for travel to get to where, to economic opportunity, to hospitals, to other services. And I think another dimension nowadays of sustainability is resilience. So sustainable cities need to be resilient cities, whether it is cities that need to be resilient to unexpected congestion or to earthquakes or to flooding or even to pandemics. An example we talked about is how we realized how public transport was not resilient enough to these shock waves we witnessed over the past couple of years. And similarly, if you look at what's happening in terms of climate change, where some cities are being flooded or earthquakes, how do you design your city to make it more resilient so that it bounces back very quickly? Because that actually also, to me, is an aspect of sustainability. So there are two questions in my head. One in your mind, resilience is part of sustainability. Mm. Whoa, that's interesting. And the second is, do we want to keep bouncing back from the shocks? I mean, living through the shocks, surviving the shocks without changing anything. Wouldn't it be nicer or healthier and more useful to not bounce back from the shocks, but thrive on shocks and learn from them and expand from the shocks? Yeah, and another thing as well is to, we know some of these short-term and long-term shocks, and we sometimes we can plan for them. So we now have a very good idea how to deal with the impacts of pandemics on cities, on mobility, etc. So we know how to, in the future, plan ahead. You know, we know that cities will experience flooding, for example. So, you know, you can build infrastructure to reduce the impact of flooding. You can build apartments and buildings that are resilient to these. So you're absolutely right. We don't need to wait Uh, I read once that many countries spend much more on rebuilding, if you like, than they would have spent if they had given some time to proper planning. So planning, revisiting the codes that we use for designing and building roads, infrastructure, etc., to make it more resilient from the beginning. 
Unfortunately, and that's why I say it is part of the, it needs to be part of sustainable thinking is that very few cities or countries actually plan for resilience when they're planning their cities, which needs to be introduced. You also mentioned that the traditional predict and provide approach is not creating good outcomes because we just induce the demand, for example, car use with creating more streets. Is the human race good at <laughs> predicting events? Because I heard that uh, there was a research, for example, where a researcher looked into a 15-year period. At the beginning, there were some predict and provide plannings and developments. And at the end of this 15-year period, it was investigated how the predictions came to real life. And the researcher concluded that none of the predictions were realized and that we are very, very bad at... Uh, at predictions. Yeah. So yeah. is it is it good to predict anything instead of providing flexibility, for example, to create more flexible environments for the future shocks we don't know about, basically? That's right, yeah. I mean, decision makers and planners and mayors and premiers and so forth, They need decision to help them understand some of the scenarios in the future. So we do use these transport demand modeling and models to try to understand what might happen in the future. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, some of them can be largely inaccurate. We've had instances in Australia and around the world where tunnels and big infrastructure projects were put forward as, you know, saviors for congestion, etc., including in Brisbane, for example, where the projects failed and the forecasts were not accurate or the business case was developed around or instead of designing the business case around the forecast, it was it was the other way around. So these tools have limitations. We rely on them to give us some insights, but we also use them. We need to be using them very selectively and, you know, recognizing their limitations. One of the difficult things in transport as well, for example, if we talk about transport, is human behavior. What might work in Paris or in New York might not necessarily work in Melbourne or in Sydney. People behave differently. I, can, I have an engineering background and In the beginning, when we used to model traffic flow, we used to look at how we model the movement of water and fluids in pipes. That one there, there are some similarities with the flow. However, one of the differentiating factors is if you take a certain pipe and you put water through it in New York, in Paris, in Berlin, in any city around the world, it will always behave in the same way if the outside factors are the same, like the ambient temperature, etc. But if you have the same, if you design the same road and you ask 100 people to drive through it in different cities, you will get totally different outcome. And it's mainly because of different human behavior. We do a lot of surveys to understand human behavior. We try to build it into our models. We try to use AI to predict some of this. But you're absolutely right. We are not doing a good job of doing these predictions very well. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to imply that you are not doing no. a good job. <laughs> I was just curious how mm. to think about this kind of controversy about predictions. But it's really, really good to hear that you are 
modeling different scenarios and you are modeling the different human behavior based on the location. That's completely reassuring. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you a recent example of a study we did for Melbourne. And there have been similar studies around the world where people are looking at the impacts of autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not here yet. People are expecting they might be here in 10, 20 years when they are ready. I mean, I would like to see them tomorrow because I know they're going to be good for reducing these deaths and injuries because of road safety. 90% of the accidents we have on our roads are due to human error. So it makes sense to, you know, if you remove the human from the driving equation with a very accurate AI, you know, system that can drive vehicles that is safe, etc., you can actually reduce these accidents. However, people have, unfortunately, and it's some of the businesses and companies have tried to hijack that discussion and see whether they can, with autonomous vehicles, whether they can actually provide us with these small pods, probably seen the Google pod where, you know, it seats only one or two people and uh, you can program it and you can sleep in it and it takes you to it. I call that a nightmare scenario because it will just worsen congestion, it will worsen emissions, etc., etc. We've done some studies for Melbourne, for example. We found that we can meet the same demand for travel. People need to travel. So we had that demand. We said, okay, here it is, how it's delivered now using public transport, private vehicles. And we ran scenarios where we said, okay, what happens if these vehicles are shared like a form of public transport? Two to four people in them, not just one person. And we found them to be quite effective. You know, you can actually reduce the number of private vehicles by 60, 70 percent even, provided people are willing to use autonomous vehicles as shared public transport. That to us, when we ran these scenarios, we ran the nightmare scenario and we Mm -hmm. ran these ideal scenarios. The models can help us evaluate and compare the benefits and limitations of these uh, scenarios. Of course, you can run a range of scenarios in the middle as well. Okay. And what are the three biggest trends regarding the future of cities? People. People and citizens and uh, their engagement and so forth. There has been also a very good development in recent years, if you like, where we are seeing cities develop as an autonomous diplomatic units. Okay. And I think this is going to be probably a defining feature of the next maybe 50 years in cities. What do I mean by that? We're seeing some changes, like it's like a new world order is emerging around cities and their economies rather than nations and their borders. Essentially, I mean, there are people who are saying the age of nations will soon be over and the new urban age will begin. Probably that's a bit ambitious, but what they're saying is that in 2025, for example, you know, 600 cities are projected to generate 60% of the global domestic product around the world. By 2050, they're expecting 50 cities will have 10 million plus people living in them. Mm -hmm. By 2050, 6.5 billion people will be living in urban areas. So what they're saying is that the 21st century looks likely to be dominated by these global cities and the importance of nations might diminish and give way more to these forces that are being promoted by cities. They give, for example, these new mechanisms and networks like the 
see 40 cities where, you know, mayors and people who are decision makers in urban areas are actually coming together and say, okay, if my country is not willing to put a target on reducing emissions, as a mayor of this city, I'm introducing recycling, like uh, we said the case in London. As a mayor, I have the authority to introduce congestion charging. So these are actually empowering people. So people are being empowered and decision makers are being empowered, which I think is going to be a good thing going forward because once these cities and people and citizens of cities are empowered, they will most likely start to chart their own pathways and formulate their own codes of conduct. You know, I think people, and we've seen that again with the pandemic, people in cities and in urban areas, they will start to cycle. They will start to do more walking. They're becoming more conscious about paying attention to what they're throwing in their rubbish bin and so forth. Many practices that if we can build on, and probably they're outside the control of state premiers and also, you know, federal governments. But it is possible that at the municipal level, at the urban local government area level, more can be done. This idea of city-states are fascinating. So I am very interested in how do you imagine this world when we know that cities are currently more consumers than producers, and they have hinterlands where they get the resources from. So in this scenario that we are talking about stronger and more empowered cities, how the hinterland fits into this picture with the addition that the hinterlands are getting bigger and bigger. So, for example, Melbourne's hinterland is already in India with some technological resources for the computers. How do city-states relate to the hinterland? Yeah, and this is where I think people will come to a city when they feel that it has a vibrant environment. It has something that Melbourne can offer, which, uh, for example, a city somewhere else cannot offer the same. So this is the thing. And you can see this, actually. Most mayors of cities, this is what they try to do with their cities, is how do I make it a vibrant environment, not only economically, but socially, you know, in terms of safety as well. People don't want to go, even if it means they're going to make millions of dollars, but they're not going to be able to walk the streets safely, probably they will be reluctant to move to that area. Again, I think um, globalization received a lot of you know, bad publicity over the past 10 years, but whether, I mean, it needs maybe a little bit of fine-tuning, because it hasn't always worked as planned, as you mentioned in these examples. So I think it's a challenge, but city and decision-makers in cities, I think, they have control over how they make their cities vibrant so that they can attract quality workers and they can attract people to come and build. So in your imagination, cities are shifting from globalization towards establishing their uniqueness and niche areas where they can be the number one all around the world, highlighting their competitiveness among the cities. That's partly what I'm saying. I don't think globalization is over or is not going to be important. I think we, we're seeing cities connect with other cities all the time. But you're right, is that cities will be these engines where products and services are provided, but they do 
connect with other cities around the world as well. If you recall a while ago, I think Denmark, for example, sent a technology ambassador to Silicon Valley. You know, that raised eyebrows then. People are starting to think of Silicon Valley, for example, you know, because you think of it, it's a major hub for technology companies, as much more important, if you like, than the capital city of a certain country. So they're sending a technology ambassador to deal with the technology companies and see how they can grow connections between those cities that are generating the services, the knowledge, and their own countries, because they do realize, for example, and many cities are on the same boat, is that in order to provide the infrastructure for these startups, etc., it's costly. So, you know, I know, for example, San Francisco and Silicon Valley, they have done that for a large number of years. They know how to do it. They have the infrastructure. They have everyone there, the companies. So let me go and connect with them through this tech ambassador so that we can live and bring the knowledge and the learning back to our own cities and own countries so that we are not replicating and we are not spending money where it doesn't need to be spent, essentially. Mm, that's really good that cities can learn from each other, but mm. interpreting these learnings for their own specific situation. Situations, because, yeah, you know, the different countries and different cities have different workforce composition and people living there with different socioeconomic, you know, backgrounds. And each city will need to understand what is my strength and what is it I do better than somewhere else, whether it is in terms of economic growth, whether it is in terms of being a magnet for international companies to come up and set up their headquarters, etc., etc. And you mentioned Silicon Valley, and you are also working with disruptive technologies in urban mobility especially, but I assume otherwise as well. Mm. What is disruptive mobility? It refers really to solutions that are mainly driven by disruptive technologies that have impacts that even transcend transport. So they might actually create opportunities in the wider economy. Let's say, although Uber wasn't disruptive in the beginning, because Uber came about as a replacement for taxis, you know, something just to prepare. However, what became disruptive later on is that they moved away from the concept is that I need to provide the car and the driver. And then they went to saying, no, I want to focus on the digital platform. My strength is that I want to build this digital platform where I can provide opportunities for uh, Joe Public, anyone who owns a vehicle that meets our standards to come and join the platform and be able to monetize the platform for their own benefit. So that to me is disruptive in that it has really disrupted the mobility industry to begin with. Okay, how? We now have evidence to suggest that ride-hailing companies like Uber, Didi, etc. are disrupting the car ownership model. Many families in the U.S., in Europe, in Australia, instead of owning three vehicles, for example, are now doing with two vehicles. And in many cases, actually, they're doing with the second vehicle. And if this trend continues, these car sharing, ride hailing opportunities can actually disrupt even the car ownership of just a single vehicle, especially if we move towards transit-oriented and pedestrian-oriented cities. So as you can see, it started as how do I provide a nice mode of transport that is a little bit better than a bus, 
and also less expensive than taking a taxi. And then they open it up. So now it has this wider impact. It's generating income for large segments of society. It is also generating new opportunities like for food delivery, etc. So that to me is disruptive. And this is just one example Another disruptive technology we look at, I think, besides the sharing economy, as I mentioned before, is looking at the automated vehicles and the autonomous vehicles. They're not here, but when they come, they will be equally disruptive, if not more disruptive. And just with the autonomous vehicles, isn't the disruptive attribute terrifying for people? Why do we call disruptive technologies when we could say transformative or transforming technologies instead of already making people anxious about the technology? Do you feel that we do make people anxious? Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't realize that because usually when it's uh, disruptive technology, I thought people would understand that it is because it has potential to disrupt the incumbent. Uh, for example, in this case, when it's Uber, it's going to disrupt the taxi industry with the sharing economy is going to disrupt the car ownership. So it is really when we're looking at a technology that has potential to improve in a sustainable way, something that we're currently doing 10 years ago, we did not have option. If you go back like 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 30 years ago, policy was encouraging people to buy more vehicles because you could travel. Nowadays, the policy is shifting towards how can we reduce people's appetite to owning a vehicle. And, you know, the other disruptive technology that a lot of people might relate to is with the Kodak moment. Kodak for a very long time, they were controlling the market in terms of photography and imaging and so forth, but they refused, if you like, to recognize the digital opportunities, and they said, oh, no, this is not going to happen, etc., and they were disrupted by the digital cameras and the smartphones and so forth. So this is what we mean. When I mention disruptive, I mention it in a good <laughs> in a good sense, if you like, but I do appreciate that people might take it apprehensively. Probably transformative is good, but because they're looking at, you know, the economic impact, they look at how it might disrupt other industries, if you like, mm -hmm. and make them irrelevant. Do not be afraid of disruptive technologies <laughs> because they will solve unsustainable solutions in other industries as well. Hussein, thank you so much for your time. I highly appreciate your answers. Do you have any closing thoughts, comments, requests for the audience? Yeah, I think the one request or the one hope I have, which I have been writing about recently, is if we can build on some of these sustainable practices we have developed over the previous couple of years and see if we can capitalize on them as we move forward out of the pandemic, As I mentioned, we have reduced our reliance on using on long-distance travel, for example. We have reduced our reliance on the need to travel two hours by plane just to attend a workshop and do a 15-minute presentation. Now we know that we can do it online and imagine, you know, how much fuel and emissions we are saving. So let us collectively look at how we can capitalize on some of these sustainable practices and hopefully not go back to some of the unsustainable practices of the past. Hussein, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for giving me the chance to share these insights with you. It was really 
good to hear from Hussein how even amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, there is hope for public transport, not to mention his view on people being the strengths of cities and his interesting view on cities becoming stronger in the future. You can find out more about Hussein online. All the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Hussein's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the website where the transcripts and show notes are available. Additionally, I will highly appreciate if you consider subscribing. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast?